Good morning, City Church. It's exciting to see you here. So, today is the last day in the book of James. We've been studying James for two and a half months now, nine weeks plus VBS week, and we have learned some super practical things during that time. We've talked about resisting temptation, taming the tongue, how to deal with conflict with other people, finding wisdom, lots of good things. So I hope you've already learned some things that you can put into practice and are trying out in your life already. And now, we only have eight verses to go in the book. And for most books in the Bible, at least the New Testament written by Paul, maybe not most, the last eight verses are very much like a benediction, and they're just more of a, hey, let's sit back and reflect on some truth about God. We'll all do this together. But the book of James, true to the whole book, where he keeps saying, you already know everything you need to know. Get out there and get moving. Start living it out. So his last eight verses are still packed with some theology, some really question-raising theology, and then he's just going to end, and bam, get moving. So let's just follow that same suit. Bam, let's get going. Okay. He started nine weeks ago in James 1.1. His opening verse was James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He starts off saying, I'm a servant of God. And then today, we've got these last eight verses where he really shifts gears and is going to bookend his whole letter by saying, oh, I'm also a servant of other people. So I'm a servant of God. I'm a servant of others. Love God, love others. Fits in nicely with the City Church mission statement. So all ties in very well. So let's get into the word and see what it is that James has to say. So we start. Today's passage is James 5, 13 through 20. It's on page 1844 if you want to follow along. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Before we unpack all of this, I want to remind you that we do have a Sunday night service, and it's just a little bit different than the morning service. And one of the differences is that we have question and answer time. So if something in this passage or something I say raises a question, you can come back at 6 o'clock tonight and feel free to ask and we'll have a little back and forth. It'll be fun. So you're invited to that. But anyway, sticking to the passage now. There's a theme here in these verses that kind of pops out as you read it. And it's a specific word used five times in these four verses. There are three of those words, but I'm not going to teach about the word is or the word them. We're going to go with the word pray. It was a big deal to James, and he was speaking to an audience that had a good general understanding of prayer beforehand. So I'll do a 30-second what is prayer, just to make sure we're all on the same page to start with. So prayer is so much more than just your thoughts. It is, generally speaking, it is communication with God. One author I read this week said that prayer is the connection between the earth and the power of heaven. I thought that was a cool way of saying it. But then every major power or entity in history has had prayer as part of their empire. People all around the world have been praying. If you have never prayed in your life, you are a statistical anomaly. Everybody tries it. Some people try it every day or participate in it every day. And at City Church, we believe that there's one all-powerful, all-present God. He created the world and he's still active in it. And he listens and hears every prayer that's prayed to him. Every time we cry out to him or just in a casual conversation, start thinking thoughts back and forth with him. He hears all of those. And we also believe that prayer is powerful, it makes a difference, and it is vital 
in your growth to know more about God and to be more intimate with him. So James knew all those things, and that was kind of the baseline where everybody he was writing to knew that. And then he goes on to add a few more things on top of that, especially with the community side of prayer. And remember, this is the serve others portion of the book. So make sure we're going to do this and pray with others and for others. So he gives us kind of a bullet list. I'm going to jump down to verse 16 and move back up just because the flow works a little bit better. So let's jump to James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So what is it about confession that makes it healing? What's the healing power of confession? There's going to be two things here that are really helpful when you enter into confession. The first one is that people have their public self. And they say, this is who I show people that I am. This is who I am when I tell people about myself, about my history. And then they have their private self, which includes everything they know about themselves and the things they don't want to share. And there's often a difference between these two. And it's easily seen in Facebook in that everybody puts up vacation photos and new puppy and new baby photos and crazy things they made for dinner that turned out well. Nobody ever puts up like, oh, what a horrible day. I got yelled at by my boss because I really did make a big mistake. Like, people just don't put up their failures on Facebook too often. It's much more dominated by their successes because they want people to think, oh, that person's doing really well or whatever they're doing is cool. And when we enter into confession, we get to tell people about that stuff that isn't public all the time. We do it in a trusted situation, whether it be a growth group or a Bible study or just somebody we've known for a long time. And then after we share what's dirty in our lives, they still sit there across the table with us or on the couch next to us and they're still our friend, and they're like, okay, everybody's got dirt, and holding true to the second half of this verse, and then you pray together so that you may be healed. And it is a community-building aspect to say, like, yes, I'm going to reinforce that unconditional love God has taught us, and I'm still going to love you for who you are, including all of that dirt, but I'm going to be forward-thinking, and we're going to work together to loosen the chains that selfishness and sin have in your life. So that's the first way, confession's healing. But the second way, it really helps you relate to God a lot better too. Because if you're talking about your weaknesses, it makes you think about them. And it forces you to realize that you are not on the same level as God. God alone is the one perfect being up on the top. Nobody else is on the perfect level. And then everybody else in the world is down on the same level. Everybody else is equal value, equal worth, equal lovability. So there's nobody down on earth that's better than anybody else. And God's way appears separate from that. So just remember that dichotomy that God's perfect, all of us are equally not perfect. And those are the two things that are good about prayer and confession. So we're starting with the idea that we're going to care for our friends by loving the whole person, loving the self, the dirt, and we're going to be concerned about their future and their growth in Christ. So number one, that was the first thing. And now we get to jump into the fun part. Verses 14 and 15 in the prayer of healing. James 5, 14 and 15. Pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. All right. There's some big ideas there. There might be some emotional ties to some of that stuff. So we're going to wrestle with this for a couple minutes. And we're going to start our wrestling match 2,000 years ago. Because we need to start with a concept that was pretty prevalent back then, that sin and sickness had a direct correlation. If you sinned, you got a cold. If you sinned big, you got leprosy. There was just a one for one. So it was kind of embarrassing whenever you got sick, because then somebody's like, what'd you do? Why do you deserve this? 
And in the first part of the book of John, chapter 9, the disciples ask him about this, ask Jesus. And they say, whose sin caused this man to be born blind? Was it the sin of his parents or was it his own sin? Thinking, of course, how do you sin before you're born? And Jesus comes back with a great response. And he said, it was nobody's sin that caused this sickness. It was just for the glory of God may be shown. And then Jesus heals him. And the disciples and James and all the people in this culture at this time had the idea planted for the first time that sin and sickness are not actually a direct correlation. It's possible for good things to happen to bad people and bad things to happen to good people. So it really kind of complicated things there. And it's also complicated because you don't know exactly what James was thinking because he's been taught that all, growing up as a kid that sin and sickness were connected one for one. And now Jesus, his brother, comes along and says, wait a minute, that it's not connected. It's possible for different things to be, have different reasons that they occur. So when James write the, writes 14 to 15, is he talking about spiritual healing? Is he talking about physical healing? Or is it the genesis of some new paradigm that there's just no connection whatsoever and healing is independent from sickness? And I have no idea how to answer that question. I read seven commentaries this week and I got seven different answers and there was very little overlap. It was really confusing to me. So I think I'm going to step outside of James 5, look at the whole Bible, look at history, look at our experiences, and see if we can come up with a, a good answer for the prayer of healing. So if we're still 2,000 years ago, we want to know, we've said that sickness is caused by sin or accidents. It is possible that you got kicked by a goat and it was just an accident. But for the most part, it was caused by sin. And then the healing came from repenting from some kind of whatever your faith was at that time, some kind of washing or cleansing, or by finding favor with God and getting miraculous healing. And then there was the prayer of healing. James told us to say, hey, pray and you will be healed. But even 2,000 years ago, we know from the Bible that we got different results when people prayed the same prayer. Paul in 2 Corinthians prayed to be healed, and it did not happen. In Acts chapter 4, there's the man lame from birth, and Peter and John said, hey, hop up and walk in the name of Jesus. And boom, he was healed. It was awesome. And in Acts 20, there was a guy raised from the dead. Definite miraculous healing. It was kind of a crazy story. He was in church, and he fell asleep. But church was on his upper, upper level, and he fell out of the window and died when he hit the ground. So we have learned from that mistake, and we have securely locked all the south side windows in our building. <laughs> so we want to have that same experience today. But anyway, so when that happened, Paul went down and prayed for him, and he was raised from the dead. So 2,000 years ago in the Bible, we know that people prayed for healing. Sometimes they got it, sometimes they didn't. So that brings us to ask a couple of questions. First of which is how have things changed in 2,000 years? Because now we know, we're a lot smarter now. We know that sickness can be caused by germs, um, mutagens, toxins, all kinds of a host of other things that we know microbiologically that can cause sickness. And we also know there's more options for healing. I mean, your own immune system does a pretty good job if you rest and put the right things in your body. We've got surgery, immunotherapy, and a whole host of vitamins and things that prevent sickness from ever happening in the first place, and lots of doctors and lots of study. So we know that the cause of sickness has changed, and we know that the healing medically has all changed, but we still have the same prayer of healing and we still have the same results. Sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. I am a huge believer in miraculous healing. For myself personally, I had mono for three days. I had 300 people pray over me. I almost missed a trip to Guatemala in my senior year of high school. 
And so that was a great experience, really hammered that home for me. But then even more important and more life-changing for me was about four years ago, and I was just playing with my daughter in the living room, and she started to have a seizure. So we went to a couple emergency rooms and pediatricians and neurologists, and she would, we just didn't really get any super good answers. And she was having maybe two dozen seizures a day. And so we called together our growth group and Pastor John, and they came together, we put oil on her head, and we prayed that she would be healed. And then this went on for about three weeks. And then it was Easter morning, back in the old sanctuary at Armitage, the old worship center. And on Easter morning, we were singing, Christ the Lord has risen today. And she started to clap with the music in tempo. And the glaze kind of disappeared from her eyes. And the seizures dropped to about four per day. And within a week, I think she'd had her last one. So I'm a huge believer that God steps in miraculously and heals people still to this day. But also, in my own family, I have a mom and a sister who have been anointed and have not been healed. So for me personally, my own, as tight as you can get in that family, I've had that same experience that sometimes you get healed and sometimes you don't. So now I have to ask, why do we keep praying and why do we keep getting different answers? And the easy way to say, why do we keep praying, of course, is, well, we still hope that we're going to get healed. Like, if you don't ask for it, you're not going to get healed. But it's, there's a much better and bigger answer to that as well. Because, oh, okay, I just get kind of worked up thinking about my daughter. Okay. If we look at James 5, if we go back to the passage again, James tells us that prayer is not something that we do just at bedtime or mealtime when we need something. But prayer is actually something we do all the time. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call on the elders of the church to pray over them. Prayer is something we are to do all the time. Back in week four of the sermon, John, one of his great points that I learned was like, whenever you're tempted, that is a great trigger to pray. Whenever life throws you a curveball or steps out of rhythm, those are triggers. You're like, this is a good time to pray. I'm extra happy. I'm extra sad. I'm extra needy. Something is going on. I should just pray. It should be the first response when you feel worry or whatever else is going on in your life. So then we keep praying because James tells us to, and it's going to be an act of obedience to pray all the time. It's something we do to get closer to God. It's similar to communion and devotions and coming to church. It's an action that we choose to do to foster a relationship with God. We want to invite God to be a part of every corner of our lives. And prayer is going to do that, every corner of us emotionally and all our experiences. It is for intimacy with our creator. That's the goal. That's why we pray when we're super happy in times of joy. It's why we pray when we need something. It's why we pray when we need specifically healing. Because no matter what the answer is, the goal is not the answer. It is about being connected with God. And that is why we keep praying these prayers. And that brings us to the second question. Why do we keep getting different results? Is it because of there's that one line that said the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective? Do certain people get their prayers answered more often? Does Pastor John have a better answer to prayer, yes, record than somebody else? And the answer is a clear no. Don't even keep thinking about that. Jesus did a lot of work to make, he went through a lot of pain and did a lot of work to make sure that we have that open relationship with him. 
And the Bible says that when that happens and we enter that relationship, we are as white as snow. We are not linen white or dove white or ice white or off white or cream or any other type of white. Everybody is equally white as snow. Jesus does not impute righteousness to somebody all the way and just a little bit to somebody else. We are all equally righteous. Everybody that has entered that relationship with Jesus. And since we're all righteous, or everybody that has that relationship with Jesus is righteous, all of those prayers are equally powerful. There's not a level of this person's prayer is going to be better, so call that person because they have a better track record. No, everybody's prayers are powerful and effective. So what is the difference then? James uses Elijah as an example to say why. And at first, this got me really mad because Elijah's kind of a superhero in the Bible. And James is saying, hey, everybody can pray. Even Elijah can do it. You're like, hmm, kind of set me off guard at first. I feel like that's saying, look, anybody can swim. Michael Phelps can swim. Everybody else can do it. You're like, I thought that at one point. I'm like, hey, look how easy the butterfly is for Michael Phelps. I'm going to give it a shot. And I jump in the pool, and I do the butterfly, and I'm not breathing too well, because like I just, I'm not getting it quite right. I'm like, that's okay. I'll just hold my breath. I can probably make it the whole length of the pool. And when I finally ran out of breath and I came up, I was exactly where I started. Maybe I'd even gone backwards. Like, whatever it is that he makes look so easy, I did not figure it out. So I had to still keep wrestling with that idea that why is Elijah the example James chooses to show that everybody can pray. And then as I realized I was wrestled with that, I came up with an answer. And it's the same answer as why do we have different results. So let's jump down back into James 5. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. So yes, Elijah had some amazing results to his prayers. And it was because he really listened to God. In 1 Kings 18.1, God told Elijah he was going to send the rain. So Elijah already knew. And then he took his prayer life, and he knew God, and he knew the scriptures, and he aligned his prayers with God's glory. And if we think about some of the prayers we pray, that whether they get are more commonly answered yes or no, how many people pray rhetorically to win the lottery. That prayer gets prayed, I think, quite a lot throughout the U.S., but almost never gets a yes answer. And then on the other end of the spectrum, in my own life, the times that I pray, hey God, today I'd really like the opportunity to share my faith with somebody. That prayer almost always gets answered, which reminds me that I should really pray that prayer every morning when I wake up. And even farther down the spectrum on yes answers, the one prayer that has always been answered yes in all of history is when somebody says, hey God, I'm sorry that I am selfish and I focus on my own needs and wants and I've messed up other people on the way. I would like to change and I need a relationship with you to do that. I want to be in relationship with Jesus and focused on your kingdom. That prayer always gets a yes answer in all of history because it is clearly for God's glory and God's best interest in the long run. But then we got, still got this huge gap in the middle. Things that aren't necessarily clearly God's glory or things that aren't. And things that we will never know. I cannot speak on behalf of what's part of God's will for his own glory. So in replacement of that, I'm going to offer up a little story that kind of gets you thinking about what it might be like. And it's going to be a story of a farmer. I'm going to put a little twist on the beginning. The twist comes from I had a friend that went out of town. And we were house-sitting. We had a key for him to take care of his dog. And one day we went in there and took all the labels off his canned goods and all of his spices. So he came back, and he had no idea what was in his kitchen anymore. So we're like, oh, he didn't know what he was going to cook until he was already halfway through the process. 
And what if we did that to a farmer? And we took all the labels off his seeds, assuming that most farmers probably can look at a seed and know the difference, but we're going to leave that out of the story. And just say, what if a farmer was planting seeds that he didn't know what they were? What would happen then? And the farmer is still going to proceed with what he does. He is still going to sow the field. He's going to plant the seeds. He's going to water the seeds. And he's going to create an environment for those seeds to grow. Because that's what farmers do. They make an environment for things to grow. And then as time passes, the farmer doesn't know what's coming. But he will still see growth, and he will still get a crop. It might just not be specifically what he was expecting. When we spend time praying, we are being the farmer. We are fostering and making an environment for God to grow in us. We, the more and more we pray about it, the more long-term focused we get and more aligned with God's glory our prayers get. When I talked to my sister this week, the one that's been anointed and is still fighting to get better, she was saying that her prayers, the longer she goes, get more and more focused on the people around her and God's glory and their salvation and all of the long-term things. And it's less about the immediate needs. So it's just kind of cool that we need to reset our minds on longer and longer terms. And because God thinks pretty long-term. God's not stuck in the next five minutes. He gets to exist all over eternity. But anyway, so if we're thinking about the long-term, trying to be more like God and God's glory, that brings us into the last two verses of James chapter 5 in the whole book. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. I kind of got stuck on the wander from the truth phrase here because it's got a special place for me as a youth pastor or a youth volunteer, as the case may be now, that when kids graduate from high school in America, like 70% of them say they're Christian right now. Kids who graduate from college, like 20% say they're Christians. So what is happening? Why are kids wandering away from the faith? If you have a good youth group, like we have here at City Church, you try and prepare kids for these experiences. And we go through every week we have, before I give away the answers, I want to go through the top four reasons of why people leave the faith in that years in college. So if anybody wants to wager a guess, just a short guess, not necessarily testimony, does anybody have a guess at why people walk away from faith in college? You can shout it out. Peer pressure. That's a good one. Second guess? All right. You get a Kit Kat. Nice catch. Okay. Yes. Peer pressure is a big one. The connection with friends. Here, so I'll just pop up. The next screen shows you the top four reasons. So they get professors that say, you can't actually be smart and be a Christian at the same time. And then you get the peer pressure aspect. And all their friends say, Christians aren't accepted. It's okay to be anything you want except a Christian. And then... Number three, there's no one I connect with. It's similarly tied to the peer pressure one. When they go to church and they're the only person there in their age group or demographic. And then the fourth one is that God isn't really making a difference. Going back to the unanswered prayers aspect of they expect God to do a specific thing and he's actually doing something different. And they're like, that's not what I wanted. I'm out. It's not what I thought it was. So as I was saying, like a good youth group like we have, we're going to do lessons that incorporate critical thinking. We're going to bring in science. We're going to bring in social aspects and be like, hey, the Bible and your brain work together really, really well. There's a component where they talk back and forth. It's not a one or the other thing. And 
We give them space to say, this is what I'm feeling. These are the questions I have. And there's no like, oh, that's not acceptable here. Get out of here. So we just try and give people room to develop who they are. And then we'll say, this is how the Bible is speaking into where you're at right now. And then we do fun things so that they can connect and have friends. And when things are going on in the community where God's working, we try and take part in those things or we try and cause them ourselves and then we celebrate them. So we're active and celebrating the things God's doing in the community. So even with these, the way we prep our students, we know that a lot of students and adults are gonna at some point wander away from their faith. And what is it that we do at that point? Some of us get sad, like, oh, that's too bad, I guess. It was good having them as a friend. I don't know, we just kind of, there's sadness is one option. A second option might be to get mad because what if you had warned them, like, hey, stop hanging out with that person or stop that habit and they don't do it and it just grows and they leave the church because of that. And you're like, I warned them, I did my part already. And you just kind of let them go their way. But James is saying, absolutely not. This is when it is important to be caring for your friends and caring for their long-term faith. You have got to still be their friend. The number one reason that people come back to faith after they leave is that somebody close to them is living out their faith. And a huge subset of that is that especially if that is happening at a really hard time in their life. So whatever the reason is, remember we were doing confession and saying that we're all equally lovable. If some, just because somebody's wandering from the church doesn't mean they're less valuable to you as a friend or less deserving of your energy to pour into them and pray for them and hang out with them. I want to jump out of James to the book of Luke to, for my closing thought here. And in Luke 22, this is a great verse, 31 and 32. It says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. When Peter denies Jesus those three times on the night that Jesus died on the cross and reset how the entire universe works, the phrase used to describe Peter that night was the same phrase from James 5.19. It said that James was wandering from the truth. And so I went to Luke 22 because this is where Jesus interacts with him. And Jesus sets the perfect example for how to respond to a friend who's wandering away from church. Jesus starts by being present with him. He's having a meal with him, even him with all the dirt that Jesus knows is coming. And he's encouraging him. He's saying, hey, I have prayed for you, which is number three, that he is praying for him. And he's praying for his long-term faith. He's not saying, hey, Peter, I hope you have a great night. I hope it's pain-free and you wake up to sunshine and roses. He is praying that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus is setting the perfect example that he is present with his friends. He is praying for his friends and he is concerned about the current needs of, their, of them and their needs going into their faith for now into eternity. It's a perfect example. And then Jesus says to Peter, I have set this example for you. Now go and do likewise and strengthen the faith of your friends. Get moving. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are all on one equal plane of lovability and worth, and we all need you. And we all have friends that have come alongside us and strengthened us that we have done that. And we need to go and care for our friends in the same way. We can pray for their needs immediately and in the long term. And we know that you are listening. And we know that you are working in the end to your glory. We don't know what that, 
entails specifically for us. We want to offer ourselves as a way to bring your glory to the world through whatever it is, and especially to our friends that we have influence over, people in our world. Help us to have the energy and the mindset and the decision-making to care for our friends that need us the most. In your name we pray. Amen.